This podcast is reserved for audiences 18 years and older. Hello, and welcome to Leather Talk with Mr. Bullet Leather 2020. I'm your host, Brandon. Our next guest has been in the leather community for 23 years. She's served numerous leadership roles and has been a part of producing and co-producing events such as the Northern California Leather Sir, Leather Boy, and Community Boot Black titles. She's currently the den mother for Miss San Francisco Leather and holds the title of Miss Alameda Leather 2009. Get ready for some more leather talk. everyone, this is Brandon, your Mr. Bullet Leather 2020, and today we have Deb. Hi, Deb. Hello. How are you doing tonight? Excellent. I am <laughs> excellent. I love that you're a night person. It's like 1030 at night because I'm also a night person. I always have been. So, <laughs> Deb, for those of us who may not be familiar with who you are, could you give us just a little brief snapshot of about you? Sure. Uh, my full name is Deborah Hoffman Wade. I am pushing 70. I turn 70 next year. I am a pretty much a cisgendered femme dyke is pretty much how I explain who I am. And I've been in the community for 23 years. Mm-hmm. And I am Miss Alameda County Leather 2009. I share my uh, title also with a mister who is uh, Master Richard Sprout, who I I do that with. And I have been in the community a lot, basically producing and working with the sort of administrative part of running anything. From uh, Mr. San Francisco Leather, where I was the executive producer with Daddy Ray, who actually was a producer and ran Mr. San Francisco Leather for many years, many, many years. Um, I was the one who said no to him when he would ask for too much money. (laughs) So I I did the purse strings and he did everything else, believe me, everything else, with a lot of help from the community. Um, And also, I think one of the things that I got involved in was the I became the Northern California Leather Sir Boy Community Boot Black producer um, for a couple years. I said I I agreed... uh, I agreed to do it for two years. Uh, Mark Frazier and Randall Kinnear, who owned um, and ran the title, um, the international title uh, with feeders, uh, asked me to do it for Northern California. So I did that for many years. And those were the things that I really enjoyed, Hmm. really enjoyed. And mostly did all my administrative work and work in the leather community in the men's community and when I asked Mark Frazier why he asked me he said that nobody was mad at me and that I was super super organized and I think that's 
you know, one of the things and uh, that I played and did basically mm-hmm. in the community and the leadership roles. I also retired from those roles about six years ago. Well, that gives us a, a kind of a brief idea of who you are. I'm looking at your biography right now that you sent me, and there's like <laughs> so much more yeah. we have to talk about. But well, first, I want to—I just want to bring up that you you raise a few familiar names for me from people who have either been in and around leather talk. Richard Sprott is is one of the very first people that came on the show. I think he's like episode like ten or eleven. We're almost at a hundred episodes now. So this was now like two years ago. Um, and Richard was, was super interesting. I forget how we even got connected, but it was one of the most interesting moments that we had on the show. I asked him if he would sort of articulate a scene over the podcast of of what a scene might look like with a boy. And he went through this whole, like, very (laughs) sexual moment. And I was like sitting in my chair, like, (laughs) that's my sash husband yeah Yeah. he um when people ask me what was the best thing about being a title holder i always answer that richard was the best thing Uh about getting uh we still have lunch every week every monday he his slave and i Mm -hmm. have lunch over zoom and no matter where he is or um, unless he's in a meeting somewhere. Yeah. But he, yeah, he, a brilliant man. And the first time I remember seeing him is, I think it was Dory Alley. And he walked up and he had like five men tethered to him in oh some God. way or another. <laughs> and, and he was, he, yeah. And he's hot and he's brilliant. And what else? Is better than that. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Wow. I I bet you there's so many stories here to tell. I guess before we get into it, let's get to know you a little bit more. Um, I, I love this moment in your biography where it says you came out with a vengeance for (laughs) 45 years ago. So when you came out, I mean, how old were you when you came out? So I, I would say like everyone, you come out sort of in stages. So I sort of realized it it, when I was 16 and, you know, I found my dad's horn. He will never hear this. So may he rest in peace. But, and, um, I was more interested in his playboys than anything else. And I went to my school library. So this is 19, probably 65, 1965. And I went to the school library and the only thing I found was a book called The Well of Loneliness. Now, The Well of Loneliness was a depressing, horrible picture of lesbians where you know everybody dies in the end it's just it was how you lived a lonely and horrible life and I thought if that's what it is I don't want to live like that right and so I kind of pushed that away and did what most good Catholic girls did which was I went into the convent so I went in the convent in the late 60s early 70s left in the late 70s, was there about seven or eight years, uh, left before I took any final vows, uh, came out, but I came out in the 70s, and the coming out in the 70s was 
the beginning of the gay rights movement, the mm. women's movement, the take back the night, the, um, uh, civil rights was, in, you know, even though the civil rights movement, I went to civil rights marches with my dad back in the 60s, the civil rights movement was still going on. I don't think it's ever ended, really, mm. especially in America. So everything was at that peak then so we were i was marching for gay rights i was marching for rights for abortion for for any and the first pride parade i was in the very first pride parade in 1977 in minneapolis minnesota (laughs) and we had we we got a friend's truck and the guys wanted to write fags down the side and it was Faribault Area Gay Services, I think we put. Uh-huh. And then I had all these teenagers afterwards coming up to me and saying, from Faribault, Minnesota, which is a little town about 45 miles south of Minneapolis, who then came out and said, I didn't think anybody in Faribault was gay. And so wow. it was a great thing to do. And also it was a scary thing because I wasn't out at work. So, mm. um, and I was outed at work. Um, I was a social worker and I worked with homeless families, domestic violence, sexual assault, and incest survivors. Wow. And so I was doing a court-ordered group for incest survivors of young women ages 13 to 18, I think, or 17 or 18 was the oldest. And uh, one of the mothers found out I was gay and pulled her daughter out of the group. And when I came to the group the following week, she wasn't there, and I just asked innocently, where's Jane? And everybody looked at their feet for like, and the silence. And I finally said, okay, let's talk about what's going on here. And one of the girls said, um, one of the young women said, her mother found out you were gay and pulled her from the group. And so uh, I had to stop group and say, okay, we're going to talk about this for two minutes. And then we're going to move on. And I said, I'm sorry that this happened. And indeed, I am gay. And now we will go on to what we're supposed to talk about because this isn't about me. And so we went back to the way we did our groups. And they stopped again and they said, well, you know, we could like move, we could move the group to like Northfield. And we could have it on a, a day where we don't tell her her mom and she can come anyway. Yeah. And I said, of course, I couldn't do that because I was a licensed social worker and I'd lose my license. Yeah. But it was, to me, sort of an epiphany of things that were changed, that they were fabulous about it. And I ended up having to come out at work and... They didn't, it was, they, they didn't it care. was fabulous. No, didn't wow. care. So, and um, I came out to my family and my mother just got mad at me because I didn't tell her sooner. And, um, you know, there was, uh, I have been blessed with both me and my husband have been totally blessed with families who from the very beginning have been 
fabulous and accepting and um, I'm the oldest of 10 children, so all my sisters, all my brothers, everybody is really great. I left St. Ben's. I came out. I moved to Faribault, Minnesota, which is a, like I said, a little town outside of Minneapolis. I had my first sexual experiences there. I was 26 or 27, Wow, Brandon, so I was older. I was older because I was in the convent for all those years and I made a vow of celibacy and I take vows kind of seriously. So I, um, and I left for thousands of reasons. Um, You know, I went in for thousands of reasons and I left for thousands of reasons. And uh, I, I always say, you know, my sort of gender identity and my sexual identity is like a river. It just sort of with tributaries. And the first one was the convent who got me out of my house mm-hmm. and taught me discipline and got me a college education and absolutely look at the world through different communities. I, I belong to one of the largest women's convents in the world at that time. And so it was opportunities I taught on the Red Lake Indian Reservation during the AIM trials, I did tons of things that I don't regret ever being there. And yeah. it gave me skills that I still, I always say, hey, I lived with almost 500 women. When women live together, they sync their periods together. Yeah. So they all PMS at the same time. If I can live with 500 women PMSing at the same time, <laughs> I can get along with just about anybody. I love that so much. Wow. It's so funny uh, because I almost went to the seminary to become mm-hmm. a Catholic priest. Uh, mm-hmm. So that just really catches my attention. I'll ha- I'll have to share that story on another podcast episode, but like for many reasons. But I ended up going on tour with a a religious group, I guess you could say, and I it was wonderful because sort of like yourself, I got to see the world through different eyes as like a missionary, and mm-hmm. I traveled the world. I went to like ten countries and fifty states, and I traveled for years and played my violin and it was incredible. Mm-hmm. Um, but I will attest to that. It is there, it is like one big Wi-Fi connection. All the women on that bus after like two months. Boom. Yeah. It's like <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. So it, it's somewhat of a joke and somewhat of a reality of, you know, um, learning to get along with people that you live and uh, with 24 mm-hmm. seven. And it, it's a great, it was a great step into community. I also think that the second thing was coming out as a lesbian uh, and as a dyke at that time during the time where it was, um, it, it was the most fabulous time of, learning not to be ashamed of who you were and standing up for who you were when everything was against the law, everything. Um, so the to see marriage and the laws that we have now, and hopefully we'll keep them, 
I did not believe I would see it in my lifetime. So it's, to me, it's always a fabulous thing. So I think that, so the three things that the convent was one, coming into the women's community was certainly a big one, especially in the 70s and 80s, when the political atmosphere and the sexual atmosphere was all together, especially as a dyke in, and there were women's bars everywhere. So there was lots of flirting and lots of making out in the corners and the butches lined up against the wall with a with a finger in the belt and a beer in their hand and yeah and it was kind of at that time coming out of the secret club era of the 50s Mm -hmm. and the 60s most of the 60s too it was coming out of that era into being more open about gay bars and where the gay bars were, which were all in Minneapolis and St. Paul. And just, it, it was a fabulous learning experience, both politically and emotionally and sexually and all that stuff. And then I always talk about my third flow is the into that big river is the leather community. Yeah. And finding that later in life, I was 50. So I was... 49 or 50 when I discovered the leather community and I discovered the leather community through online. Uh-huh. This is where being old's a bitch. Um, <laughs> okay. <laughs> so there was a online group called butchfem.com. Butchfem.com is no longer around. Okay. But it was a community that was online and discovering and looking at that community it was chat rooms and all of that kind of stuff and i can't remember what it was before that it was gay.com on one of the other so i I, old old stuff that's not around anymore so I, i met some butches from san francisco who were into the leather community and I'd always been interested in the leather community from a DS kind of thing. Okay. I always say I am the daughter of a bossy woman who is the daughter of a bossy woman. <laughs> so my grandmother, my mother, and I are basically dominant them leaders of households. Uh-huh. So I make the major decisions in my household, even though my partner Sean and I don't have a DS relationship. I have that with my boy, Mike. I still pretty much make all the decisions about just about everything. <laughs> and have, Sean and I have been together for 34 years. So, oh, son. Um, Sean. Sean, Sean, Sean is, Sean, Dr. Sean Wade is my spouse. Okay. I always just say spouse. Before, before when you had to do uh, gender dyslexia to keep your jobs and everything in the 70s, 60s and 70s, and I would switch pronouns to make Sean he, um, just to protect our relationship a lot of times or to protect my job. Right. Um, I used to call her my spousal unit because it was sort of a gender-free way of saying, "Yeah, this is person. This is a person I'm married to." So it's funny. Still to this day, like I mean, I'm married to my husband, but to some mm-hmm. audiences, I'll say my partner. Because right. it's kind of, I, I just don't even want to like go get into it because I can kind of, you can kind of tell the people who can't handle that right. information right now and um, yeah. 
But I was a super, I was a super, super freaky radical feminist that at when we got together, and so <laughs> even when it was legally okay for us to get married, yeah, I said no. I was never going to be anybody's wife until uh -huh. our twenty fifth anniversary, oh. and we actually got married at the San Francisco Eagle, oh my by God. Queen Cougar. Um, in San Francisco on our 25th wedding anniversary. Oh my God. So, and all the leather people were my bridesmaids and all that kind of fun stuff. My sister and my niece came and yeah. So. That is so amazing. Yeah. Was everyone in was like fun. leather? <laughs> yes. Yeah. I love yes. that so I'll much. Send you, I'll send you a picture when we're I done. I would love that. I would love yeah. that. Because I have like the wedding party picture. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Well, Deborah, you've you've already you've covered so much, and I just want to kind of back up a little bit because sure. I feel like you are such like you have so much knowledge and history, and all of this is flying by me, and I'm like, whoa. <laughs> uh, so I, I want to go back to can we describe what a dyke means? Because versus is it the same thing as a lesbian? Is there some kind of social? I think the reason that I use dyke rather than lesbian is to me, lesbian sounds clinical to me. Okay. And it's never been a part of what I felt comfortable with. So I always describe myself as a femme dyke in that to me, a dyke is stronger and fierce and it just fit me better and it's a stronger word so that's why i describe myself that way okay rather than um using the word lesbian now not that i have any problems with it but okay yeah i guess i just i i'm not really around like any kind of lesbian or dyke communities necessarily so like some of those things are kind of right fresh to me right um, we, uh, living in a small communities, you have no choice but to have the communities, both the gay men's community and the women's community, to form together. Mm -hmm. So even though in Fairbough, Minnesota, there wasn't a gay bar, we picked a bar and, and that's where it. we hung out. Yes. And so, it, and we were accepted and loved and we had money. So that, you know, that's what mattered. And so I think that... Um, it just became something that all the dykes and the gay men got together. And so my comfort and um, love of our community to me is genderless mm -hmm. because um, I've, wor I've also worked with the trans community for many years. I was on True Spirits Board of Directors. Wow many, many years ago. So I, I think that one of the great things about growing up as a gay person or as a dyke in the 70s and 80s outside of a metropolitan area is that when you found each other, everybody knew everybody else. So they introduced you to everybody else. And you had a community that was really the trans community, the gay men's community, the women's community, the leather community, because there were 30 of us, yeah. <laughs> you know, not 300. So would you say, I mean, it kind of sounds to me like, I mean, I want to know because I wasn't around the 70s. Um, mm -hmm. But <laughs> like the, 
the way you're describing the communities that like kind of together, it, it seems like very united. Uh, do you think that's changed over the years? Has that morphed into something? I think it is. I think it is unique to smaller communities okay. because once you went to Minneapolis, there were the gay men's bars and the women's bars. Got it. And okay. there and there was one bar where I met Sean. Sean was a drag king in the with two two af- my my spouse is African American. And so two African American drag queens asked Sean to perform with them when they were doing some show. And the townhouse, oh, I'm sorry I mentioned the townhouse bar was the drag show bar on Sunday nights in the 70s and 80s and I met Sean the very first time when she did that show and that bar was about the only bar that was a mixed bar so that it was both the men and the women hang hung out there it morphed many times over the years but the sunday drag shows i think still go on every sunday so like i said in minneapolis and the st paul there definitely was a division between the men's community and the women's community the numbers were bigger is what you're saying oh much bigger much bigger Absolutely. The Minneapolis-St. Paul has the largest gay community per capita in the United States at the time that I was living there in the 70s and 80s, meaning for a smaller community because it pulled in Mm -hmm. from Wisconsin and Iowa and North and South Dakota. It was the largest city next to Chicago or New York or San Francisco. So that's why there's a huge gay and lesbian community. There's a huge leather community there, just like there is almost everywhere in the United States now. So now I'm curious to know about um, because you mentioned the the first pride parade was it was it in Minneapolis or was it okay? How did that even come about? Like, how does one hear about? Hey, we're going to do this thing. I mean, there's no Twitter. There's no (laughs) yeah, Um, bars. Mostly it was uh, through the bars and through the gay press. Uh So the there was uh, the lavender the lavender magazine. I think it was called was the gay rag for that area, and I was a writer for them for seven years. I did a. Op Ed Cullen for them for seven years under my real name, and in back in that time, so it was so there was a gay press, there okay. was Amazon bookstore was the dike before it was Amazon Amazon there was Amazon bookstore Amazon bookstore was most of the dikes in the Midwest connection to getting books like take that, you know, like our bodies ourselves or any lesbian literature or gay literature came through Amazon bookstore in Minneapolis. And then there was one called over the rainbow. I think it was called, which was more a men's bookstore, sex toys, all that kind of stuff. And so it was Amazon. So it was a opening up of women's sexuality and being able to talk about sex even as dykes. 
so Minneapolis and St. Paul were really the places that I sort of came out and got really involved in the gay community. And and so you learn things from those bookstores. You The bars always had posters up. Uh, word of mouth um, went around. And it like in every community, there are organizational geeks like me who <laughs> love nothing more than organizing shit and uh, for community to enjoy. Right. And so that's kind of, I think, how it started and how it gets around. And it was, it was sort of like everything else. If you, uh, we had codes too back then, which in, in Minnesota it was, are you a bowler? And if you were a bowler, meant you were gay um, in our community. So it was, is she a bowler? Yeah, I think she's a bowler. So um, those kind of things were, you just had the codes to do it. And so uh, Minneapolis and St. Paul was much more open. Um, Much, I always say there's a little San Francisco in every state. Uh And Minneapolis certainly is that and St. Paul to a certain degree, but Minneapolis for sure. Now I'm sure you've been to the pride parades and and marches today. Like, yes, currently, how is the energy the same or different from that first pride march to today's pride marches? It was different in that it was more of a protest and it was risky, more risky at that time Mm -hmm. because uh, homosexuality, sodomy, all those laws were in place. And so you could lose your job on, on a morals charge. You could, if you were seen on television or whatever, you could do all of that. So taking that into consideration to be in that parade was also examining what was important to you and whether you were willing to be outed and be out and um, take those risks. But there's like two contingencies of, you know, it's so corporate now and it's, you know, a party, party, party um, to... uh, people my age and older saying, well, it was a protest. It was both. Mm -hmm. It was both because it was the first time. So we did the parade down Hennepin Avenue, which is the major drag, the Market Street. of, And then we ended up with a party in Loring Park with booths and shows and all of that kind of stuff. And it was fabulous. And it was joyful and freeing. And the fear kind of went away because you were with all of those people. I think that's no different than today, although there were no corporations involved. Um, Target and all of those places, there just wasn't that around. There just wasn't any kind of corporate sponsorship by anyone. So basically the floats were me and my truck you know, with a yeah. bunch of fags and dykes in the truck. Uh, me and, you know, and behind me was Tanae drag queens and in their little convertible. So it was a lot of convertibles and floats that people made. And I think there was a, a put-together band. And uh, it, it was, you know... It was fabulous. You know, it was fabulous. And it was pre-AIDS. So it was 
sexy and fun and people hooked up and that's how you met people because you met people in the bars or things like this so yeah and there were leather bars back then too so the gay 90s which was a huge bar in minneapolis that's still there was a restaurant a drag bar a dance club in the back in the dark in the corner was the leather bar um it was they sold whips and chains they it was an amazing amazing forest of things that you would walk through so you would to get from the dance club to the to the leather bar you had to walk through this sort of black maze and every once in a while you would see men getting a blowjob in the corner or women getting you know all all yes um it was there was a lot of sex and uh, we just had fun. And so you could go from one. Oh, and there was a piano bar, too. So, you know, all the older guys and women who wanted to sit in the piano bar and just listen to some, you know, sing show tunes was there, too. So it was a fabulous time and experience of coming out when that first flush of freedom was fabulous and not being afraid because you were surrounded by hundreds of people not just the 30 people from your community and so I think that there's no difference in that today Mm -hmm. than there was then I think the biggest difference is in the diversity of people um, and gender identity has certainly changed and been allowed to blossom mm-hmm. in this time, which it was not in my time. In my time, when I first came out, I had to choose. Are you a fucking them or are you a butch? And you had to choose one or the other. Yeah. And um, that sort of ended in the 70s, in the late 70s. And then it became much more fluid in what people and how they were uh, and i think that's so much healthier today Mm -hmm. so that that was not around when we started so i i think that's much more healthier and seeing that and seeing the dyke marches and the trans marches and the poc um involvement in pride and coming out in the leather community which has you know which has grown and grown and grown too. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's interesting because I think I, I've talked with you know a lot of people on my podcast, and I've talked to specifically like some men saying you know talking about gay men's specific leather spaces and how like the leather community to them was like celebrating that hypermasculinity, like kind of <laughs> an fu to society telling them that they were, you know, Nelly Faggy Bottoms who were fairies and blah, blah, blah. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but it was sort of like this statement of like, we can be masculine too. Exactly. Uh, But now we're kind of in an age, like where you said, where like those kind of boundaries of you have to choose, like I'm mask, I'm femme, I'm dom, I'm whatever, those kind of walls are starting to come down. And my thought in this whole thing is like, where does the future of the leather community stand? Like a community that traditionally celebrates hypermasculinity is now in an age where that is no longer necessarily like 
something that's held as a priority kind of thing. You know what I'm saying? I think it's like every other community in the world. It's, I can't find my people. Oh my God, look, I found my people. Mm. I finally found my people. Oh my God, these people are different than me. Are they really my people? Mm. Well, of course they're really your people. They're just the, the expanse of who they are is just grown and mm-hmm. why wouldn't you just celebrate that that uh, you know the the more diverse we are the more inclusive we are the greater our opportunities to grow with people and grow in the leather community and all those things because the leather dyke community when when they were out in the 60s and 70s and 80s was absolutely shunned by the lesbian community the straight um not straight um i think i know what you're saying like vanilla thank you the (laughs) vanilla community exactly the vanilla community and where we weren't feminists there was actually wars about it and uh Leather women were called abusive, and uh, wow. I think so. The dyke community and coming out and forming our, you know, the Knights of Leather and the, all those dyke communities in the leather community also were about that you can be a dyke and be a kind and be a good person and still be a leather person who likes to beat other people, who. Lo- who likes to have sex in public places, who likes to dominate and run households, Mm. whatever it might be, whatever kind of leather flavor you like, um, was accepted and encouraged in a community where the larger political community didn't accept you and shunned you too. So um, I think it, the diversity of trans, the the gender flu, fluidity in our community uh, and in the leather community, to me, has always been welcome. But mm-hmm. I like change and chaos. So <laughs> it, 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 it just I mean, change and growth doesn't come from being comfortable, I always say. Right. And, you know... <sighs> One thing I said in the beginning was like when I found the leather community for me it was so special that I want that to at least last in my lifetime and hopefully last right. through many lifetimes for you know going forward. But like if the community itself decides that they're going to be stagnant, they're going to be one thing. Eventually, that's just going to fizzle out. It's it's not going to be right. here anymore. Right. And what's the harm in welcoming? everybody into the community who wants to be leather who has a heart of leather who yeah. is kinky who wants to have sex outside in the bushes and like get beat up and you know like <laughs> why not yeah yeah because human beings are always morphing and changing or they you know it's sort of like the chaos theory They talk about the chaos theories, everything. We live in chaos all the time, and we have little quark moments of of calm. Mm. And then everything's chaos and calm. And that the change comes in the chaos, 
and is celebrated in the calm. So I think it's always this spiral of always constantly going cycle. back to, exactly, yeah. it's always a cycle. I think politically we have a cycle. All those things happen in a cycle. I think that, you know, there used to be about five years ago, I went to like seven things put on by leather clubs in San Francisco about whether leather is dying and it's not dying. I don't think it will ever be dead because it is unique to each person or group of people on how they define it. Mm -hmm. And so if you, you only choose it to define it within certain parameters, those parameters are always going to push because yeah. that's what leather do people do. And I think the gay lesbian community and the trans community is we push all those boundaries about society and we push them for each other too. Mm. So it's sort of like that thing. Don't be saying what your nose are on your checklist because someday you may be want or interested, yeah. you know, you know, saying, you know, needle play has never been something I really wanted and was totally squigged by. And then, um, I had somebody needle or corsage to my breast and it, you know, so wow. it's, yeah, yeah. So you, it, it's, um, I think morally and ethically, you know what your boundaries are or you should know what your boundaries are, but play wise and community wise and accepting people and the choices they make and how they express their sexuality is should be delightful and growthful and celebrated by everybody yeah so but i think like the the thing about leather in my experience and observation i would say not just of myself but from others like when i see people coming into the leather community it's like a journey of discovery like they begin right. to discover the depths of who they are and like that's what's really powerful about it and it gives right. you a, a, a space where it's safe to do that. Like you can't, you know, not everybody feels comfortable just telling their friend or whoever on the street or vanilla, whatever coworkers, hey, I just got fisted the other day. It was amazing. Right. I, I've never tried that. Like the leather community creates a space for that moment yes. to happen. And I don't know how else to describe that. But yes, yes. I, I also celebrate that more than just to accept it but to celebrate it and say okay i like this and i want to pursue this mm -hmm. where do i find it who can teach me and how do i get better at it how do i prove just not only my skills but also my ability to communicate because negotiation is a major part of our you know, um, leather traditions. And so learning to communicate and tell people what you really want compared yeah. to what you think you should tell people what you want and what you really need and being able to say, I need specifically, I want to be tied up. I want needles stuck in me. I want this. I want this. So you can celebrate and find all those experiences yeah. and grow from them and 
and I think that's how you meet other people, at least in the community, when I know what's sort of like, okay, now uh, who's really good at single tailing? Well, yeah. that would be Richard. And so, you know, learning from people, and it didn't matter gender-wise. I also be belonged to a gender-fluid club. So, mm -hmm. I didn't, so Alameda County Leather was open to anyone. Um, it was not a men's club. It was not a women's club. It was a men's, women's, trans, whatever, whatever you want to call yourself or whoever you are in your being was accepted. So I think that just like politically, we have to come together in order to not have laws that harm us. Mm -hmm. We also come together as a leather community to protect one another, not only legally sometimes, but also emotionally and physically. How do you take care of one another? How do you negotiate? How do you, what do you do when something goes wrong? What, you know, how yeah. do you handle all those different things? So, and I think that community has been, one of the blessings uh, that I don't think has changed because I think there's still a mentoring community. There's still people who will teach and love to share their skills and people who are eager to learn. So I think that, you know, sort of never ends and it's ongoing and, you know, yeah. if Mozart, if Mozart wrote dirty songs about licking ass you know, yeah. in the in the 1500s, nothing much has changed <laughs> in, in right. the needs of sexuality or how sexuality um, is expressed. Other than now, we can say what we want out loud, and at least most of us can. And I and I still understand there are people who live in places that can't. Right or still afraid, but I have been blessed, never been in those communities. Well, so. the other thing too is when you're given permission to express what you want, I don't know if you've ever been faced with this, but when someone asks you, I've actually had someone ask me, what is your deepest desires sexually? And mm -hmm. what is the worst thing that you would want to endure sexually? And I thought, I froze. I was like, I don't no, and I don't want to tell you. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. You know, and there is mm -hmm. that kind of like, oh, wow, it's okay for me to explore these things and be honest about them. That's scary to sometimes. Exactly. I think it's one of the things that heal more than anything else, both in the sexual assault community, in most communities, mm -hmm. is saying your truth out loud, mm -hmm. first to yourself, even if you have to do it in a mirror or whatever, and then to another person and saying out loud makes it real. Yeah. Not only does it make it real, but it's healing. And you find out that you're not alone. There's other people. I didn't know this. And so I think it's always one of those things that's the miracle of community, which is finding yourself being comfortable in yourself, learning to be more comfortable around other people, mm -hmm. and then learning to share how you did that in another community. And I think that's one of the great 
assets of our leather community is our ability to say out loud, I like bossing people around. I want to be in total control of not only what you do or who you see, but mm -hmm. I want to know, uh, I want to tell you to touch me here, do this. I want total control in bed. I want everything I want to run. And so, and then finding people that want just the opposite. I want to be totally free from making those kinds of decisions. I give to you all of those things. So Sean and I got legally married, and then I also did a um, commitment ceremony with Mike, who, Mike Gelfand, who is my boy. Mm -hmm. And Mike Gelfand, I met when he was 21 and told him to go away and grow up, and he did. And I met him again seven years ago, and he moved in with us six years ago. And um, he's been away for co for COVID for a year, few couple years, but he he definitely is my connection to DS and the leather community, and our dynamic is directly connected to my sort of control freakishness, <laughs> anal retentive, want yeah. to be bossy from where you go to who you fuck. You know, yeah. the the other thing that the leather community opened was uh, going from monogamous to polyamory, yes. which um, which I did ten years into my relationship, and so it was ten years into your relationship with Sean. Sean, yeah. Okay. Yes. How did how yes. did that um, work out? Because you started a, as a monogamous. Couple? We started as a monogamous couple. Okay. Yes. Yes. So. Um, when I met the freaks from San Francisco, said in a most loving and fabulous way, um, we were talking about sexuality and the things I would like mm -hmm. and the things I need, just what we were talking about, being able to say to a person, this is what I need and I can't get this here. And uh, how do you do that? And there was a book that was famous at that time, written by Dottie. And I'm not going to remember the name of the book. We can put it in the notes later, but okay, Dottie. Um, Dottie Easton and uh, Janet. I can't remember Janet's last name. Um, they wrote a book about ethical ethical sluts. It's called Ethical Sluts. So they, the women who uh, explained those to me, who showed me that, said, here, read these books. So Sean and I, so I sat down with Sean and I said, this is what I want to explore. And we both read the book and talked the book and talked about it for about a year. Um, I didn't do it the opposite way, which was, remember how I say taking vows very seriously. Yeah. I did not want to break anything in our relationship because she's my foundation and I don't, I, I didn't want to end that. And so it was most painful with our dyke friends who didn't understand it at all and mm -hmm. thought I was basically a whore, which I was, but they didn't use it in a positive way. Um, yeah. And um, 
we worked through it and we made decisions. And, you know, I said 34 years later, we're still here. Mm-hmm. And um, there was the ability for me to go to leather events and go to play parties. And I went to play parties in Canada. I went, um, I, I used my, I was teaching and for a institution, for a college, and they would send me all over teaching and so I would get frequent flyer miles and I would use those to go with people and fuck it it was sort of fabulous so (laughs) um and so there was that movement and there also the community was there for me when I said out loud this is what I wanted and to help me work through going from monogamy to non-monogamy with Sean. Um, and it was not always easy. It mm-hmm. was not always easy. But it was always, it always worked out really pretty good. So, and, you know, it learned, it taught me how to negotiate too. Mm. Not only negotiating with play partners and all those things and and my own spouse, but also to sort of negotiate with myself how do I fulfill these needs by but still be a responsible spouse and Mm -hmm. take care of everything else so and I had a great community that any question I had they answered and yeah you know so I think there's very like there's definitely something to be said about like um being in a relationship whether or not it's monogamous or or not but allowing each other to to access their needs and and desires and wants within reason of course but right um because you love the other person you want them to have those experiences and right um, of course there's going to be bumps in the road but of course it's of course because it's it's called growing and you're navigating yes. something together right love but, is working through the hard times and talking about the hard things as much as celebrating and having fun so yeah. i think that there's that balance there and if you if you're not good at um of negotiating and there's also you need to be good at letting go of things of, you know, of letting go of this doesn't mean I love you any less, all those kinds of things you go through when you're moving from one paradigm to another paradigm, especially sexuality wise when, uh, you know, it's, it's, and uh, also because I was older, um, I was much more aware of who I was and, um, I I wish sometimes that I could have come out in my 20s and been in the leather community from my 20s like a lot of people uh, that I know have been, mm-hmm. but I wasn't. The, the opposite of that is that I came out when I already liked myself. I mm-hmm. was mature. I was grown up. I was comfortable in my body. I've been a fat dyke all my life, and I was comfortable in that, and I felt sexy and... The sexiness, I always say the convent gave me a deep inner spirituality and the Mm self-esteem. The women's spirituality woo-woo community gave me a a comfort in my body, that my body was just as pretty as um, any other woman's who stereotype, 
Barbie look in the world and made me comfortable in my body and with nudity and all that stuff because which is dancing in the moonlight and all that stuff and then when I kind of morphed from that community into the leather community it was another whole experience of finding something and I went to a store in Seattle um, run by a woman named Julia who is still a f- fabulous friend, and it was called Venus. Venus, and Venus was a kink um, clothing uh, w- women shop for big women. Okay. So I walked wow. into the shop with my friend bestie at the time, another femme. We walked into the shop, and I looked at her, and I said, "I'm here to buy my first piece of leather, and to." move to dress differently for events she pushed me she pushed me into a dressing room told susan to sit down and (laughs) told me to take off all your clothes take off all your clothes so i took off all my clothes um she put a leather bra on me a beautiful skirt i can show you a picture of the outfit actually this beautiful skirt i have great legs i inherited them from my mother uh, (laughs) and my grandmother and she uh put me in a leather waist cincher a leather corset and so the first so i uh i i remember distinctly going out and stepping out and I don't know if you've ever experienced looking at yourself in a mirror and seeing not only who you are, but that you're hot. You know, yeah. I look hot in this, that sort of experience of that inner and outer meeting in this outfit. And why does that's why sometimes I think when you talk about the leather community, I'm talking about leather, the smell of it, yeah. the feel of it, that's the fetish that I have for it. And a lot of it comes from that. And I re- distinctly remember calling Sean and saying, move $300 from the savings account <laughs> into the checking account. Wow. And I spent and bought my first leather, which I still wear. And still have, and boot blacks like Scout, and uh, tons of them over the years, because I was also the concierge for Dory Alley and Folsom's boot black mm-hmm. um, um, booth every year. And so I organized um, the boot blacks with Boy Jean. But uh, I've kept really good care of it. And then um, my title vest. Mm-hmm. Are the, they're the two pieces of leather that are just really important to me, you know. Uh, One, because it was my sort of... It was the physical manifestation of being wrapped in leather and being more than just the thoughts or my fantasies, but actually putting this on and stepping into that community it was the uniform it was the whatever it does that when clothing makes a difference in how you present and who you are and i believe some of that comes from the leather community some comes from the drag community Mm -hmm. which i was you know so i think that it's 
that ability to look at yourself and see yourself and leather has has been the one that <coughs> well i've moved on from the content obviously and i have moved on and pretty much left the women's spirituality community community leather is something that's constant constant in my life constant there's something so powerful about what you're saying it's sort of like physically stepping into <coughs> like the presence of who you are and uh, i love that you say feeling hot and i'll always remember i still remember i never felt hot really until like explicitly hot mm -hmm. until i really got into leather i you know okay well th this person will never listen to this podcast so i can talk about them <laughs> But I remember um, when I first came out, I started dating guys. Mm -hmm. And I had a, f a friend at the time who I don't really consider a friend anymore because of many things. Mm -hmm. But we used to, mm -hmm. whatever. Okay. So anyways, I told them, I was like, oh, look at this guy. Um, like, he says that, like, I'm really hot. Like, I, like look at this. And... She was, I said something, I, I forget what I said, but I refer, referenced myself to being hot. Like this guy mm -hmm. thought I was hot. And she told me, Brandon, don't make me be mean to you. And I was like, I felt bad and embarrassed because I was like, oh, I guess I'm not hot. Oh. And it was years later when I first put on like a harness. I remember being a Mr. S. I put it on and I'm with my partner today and mm -hmm. because of like the previous experiences that I had around leather, all of those same like sexual feelings and, and energy and smell and touch, it all, it all culminated to me putting on that harness. And I remember standing in that store, similar to what you felt and looking at myself and being like, this is power. Like, yes. this is it. Um, there's that inner power and outer power that it's sort of like the corset straightened up my spine and not only not only physically but emotionally and every other way that you can think of to say this is me yeah. and i'm hot especially growing up a geeky fat nerd yeah. in a time where everybody was fucking twiggy yeah. so you know it it, it uh, I was a fat girl with a pocket protector. So, um, uh, it, to me, it was that revelation of going from feeling dowdy and to feeling absolutely most powerfully my sexuality and that I was fabulous and that I was attractive and that there would be people who would want to play with me yeah. and be with me. And it was absolutely one of those, those look in the mirror moments where, um, mm -hmm. and I tell Julia to this day, it was a transformation moment for me that we all have mm -hmm. and they never end. They yeah. don't go away. Um, I think the older you get, they still surprise you and still, make you feel like you're alive yeah absolutely and it's like that first moment for you was really like taking ownership of that part mm -hmm. of yourself that maybe you never took the opportunity to or time to acknowledge before right and it's like 
the the powerful thing about that is like now every time you put on that piece of leather, that memory exactly trans, it, it transcends that the energy yep. of that piece will always be with you. You know. Yep. Yeah, I, I always think of it, you know, okay, this is really a dumb thing, but you know, you know how when Thor reaches and grabs his hammer, yeah. and the hammer becomes part of him, it's not a separate thing, it is part of him, it, the, you know, mm. if you see the electricity that goes from the hammer into his hand and whole body. I think of that corset as the same way. I yeah. put that on. I put my leather vest on. It becomes part of me and changes the person who I am in and changes the person who I am, but also I become more authentically who I am. Yeah. So, you know, it's sort of like, I walked into the powerhouse in my street clothes because I needed to be there to talk to Lance about something. And the bartender had never met me before and didn't know me. And he was new. And he looked at me and said, oh, ma'am, are you sure you're in the right place? <laughs> and I bet you've, and he said to me, I bet you've never been in a bar like this before. And then Lance walked up to me and gave me a big hug. And then uh, I think Brandon, uh, Brandon was a, or is, I don't know if Brandon's still uh, a porn actor, but Brandon came up and gave me a big hug and the look of shock because I was 50 or almost 60 years old. Mm -hmm. So I was probably this guy's grandmother's age. So, <laughs> you know, it's sort of like, yeah, yeah, I understand it, but. Yeah, I love that. <laughs> don't 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 ever don't ever be you know never be surprised you know you never know. Don't ever judge a book by its cover. It's, exactly. I mean, I exactly. saw Fourth of July. Um, I saw this really cute daddy. I'm a daddy's boy mm -hmm. over in the corner of the bar, mm -hmm. and he was by himself, and I was like, hmm, I'm gonna say hi to this guy because <laughs> he was just by himself, all quiet. And right. it turns out he was a, a leather title holder from Los Angeles from 1985. Right. And there was a story there. And I would have never known. And he was right. just wearing sneakers and some gym shorts at the bar on the 4th of July. I, you know what I mean? Like, right. Right. Sometimes you have to like <laughs> re remove all expectations. There that you exactly. The exactly. And that everyone has a history. And yeah. you, yours might be shorter than mine, but you still have one. And everybody's history makes them who they are right now. I, I, I and I kind of like who I am, and I, I wouldn't change anything. Yeah. I, I do have my regrets, like all human beings. I have done stupid crap, and, um, and had to forgive myself over and over again, which is really hard to do, and. Um, and move on yeah. and realize that not everybody, even in the leather community is going to have the same values that mm -hmm. you do. And so, but there are people who do, and you just have to keep yeah. slogging till you find them and you do find them. And I have relationships that are absolutely fabulous and deep. Um, Mark Frazier calls me his wife. Um, he's a brilliant, amazing man. Um, and I just, the same with uh, Richard. Uh, you find people who 
become your family, which yeah. is a kind of an overused cliche, but I can't find anything else that's close enough to right. describe that sort of acceptance of who you are, the healthy family, the one that loves you for who you are and, 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 and celebrates when you change and make decisions for yourself and, mm. and picks you up when you make bad ones and who is sometimes the most honest with you of saying, you know, there's kind of a pattern here. Yeah. <laughs> and um, you don't like this pattern, or maybe you do like it, but let's talk about what you want to do and where you want to go. Right. So let's just play games and have fun. So, you know, I have a leather community of about 15 people who we get together once a month and do nothing but play games. Um and, and just enjoy one another's company. And my two adopted children are uh, both former title holders. Irish is a Miss Texas. And, um, and my son, Sean Kinnear, is a California leather boy, 2010, I believe. And I met him because I was judging his contest. I judged the Leather Sir contest for California and met him as he was one of the contestants and he did win and he has been in my life ever since and is in all respects the son I never had. So, mm -hmm. yeah. And I think that's another thing that you find in the leather community that's unique to our community is that... Um, it, it is not a mentorship relationship. It truly is a familial relationship mm -hmm. in that I would never purport to be his his mentor in any way, but certainly I would love to be his mama. So mostly in the San Francisco community, I am the mama. Mm -hmm. I am the leather mama. I uh, the, the one thing I continue to do organization-wise in the community is I'm the den mother for Miss San Francisco Leather, um, and I, I still do that. Uh, I still keep in touch with um, what's going on in the community, but mostly my boy is the person who keeps in touch with that because I'm a bit of a fucking chicken hawk, and he's, <laughs> and he's 30 years younger than me, so... And my spouse is 10 years younger than me. So, and he said, oh, you're a cougar. I am not a fucking cougar. I'm a chicken hawk. So <laughs> let's get this right. Well, it sounds to me like leather to you represents taking ownership of who you are and family. Absolutely. Absolutely. I also think it's leather also to me is about sex and yes. about kink and about really learning what you like and what you don't like. And, you know, it's more than just filling out, you know, when I was coming out in leather, they would have send you, the doms would send you lists or as a dominant, you would send a list. Do you like this? I don't like this. These are my no's. These are my yes. You know, it was like 14 pages long. And I, I, I think that now talking that, you have so much more opportunity through this kind of research, through the internet, through, I call it George Jetson moments. 
to me, this is totally George Jetson moment of, of <laughs> that we're uh, talking about a, sex on the internet together. <laughs> yes, it, or anything on the internet, in person, being able to see yeah. your face on a TV screen yeah. was what I we dreamed about back in the '60s and '70s when the Jetsons were around, and you know they talked to each other on you know phone screens and all that kind of stuff. So it was like, I think there's so many opportunities to find out information. You want to find something, you type it in Google, and you get 17 pages of stuff. Yeah. Is it all good? No. My always, my concern has always been um, abuse within the leather community and making sure that we are consenting adults mm -hmm. and whatever your kink may be. I was a member of the, um, I, I did a lot, a lot of um, kinky play that was um, a mama boy, um, so mama daddy kind of play, um, age play. Um, which is, you know, was not a whole lot accepted for a really long time. Uh -huh. And so there are always things that you can learn about anything. And you can also get fucked over by just about anything. So being careful is also really important. And how do you vet people nowadays? Yeah. Um, because the... The universe is open to you compared to 60 miles. Or the so, 30 people in Milwaukee or whatever. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And so there becomes not only a really good way of learning how to, how do you do consent and all those kinds of things, but also looking at within our community, how we handle people who are not safe right. to be right. around. And, um, and it's a continual thing. It doesn't go away, you know, right. it's something that doesn't go away. And so it's something that we always talk about, but I also think that it, it's, you know, it's, it, it, the great thing about the internet is you can find all the freaks in the world that match your freak. Yes. And, you know, so if I like tomatoes thrown at my breast while somebody's eating my pussy and licking cream cheese off my neck. You can find somebody who will do that shit. So I think that's the great thing about being outside of your 30 people. Right. Too. Uh, right. You know, and I may not be in all of those, into all of those things, but <laughs> that's what. Is there a picture? I'm sensing a picture. <laughs> yeah. Well, we're going to take a quick pause right here and end our part one for today. Make sure to stay tuned next time for our part two with Deb Hoffman Wade, where we talk more about leather and cape. As always, you can find me on Instagram and Patreon as Leather Talk Mr. Bullet and Twitter as Brandon Bullet LA. Thanks again for listening, and as always, stay safe, stay healthy, and stay kinky. Okay.